The practice of yoga is the commitment to become established in the state of freedom. This practice will be firmly rooted when it is maintained consistently and with dedication over a long period of time. Freedom is that triumphant state of consciousness which resides beyond the influence of desire. When the mind ceases to thirst for anything it has seen or heard about, even what is promised in the scriptures. And supreme freedom is that complete liberation from the world of change which results from becoming the Absolute Self. From the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali It's no go the yogi man, it's no go Blavatsky. All we want is a bank balance and a bit of skirt in a taxi. From Bagpipe Music by Louis McNeese Introduction This is not a how-to book. There are already more than enough of those, but a how-come one. How come a time-honored road to enlightenment has turned into a $25 billion a year wellness industry? What were the historical twists and social turns on the winding path? that led from the caves and forests of ancient India to the gyms, studios and village halls of the modern West? What have the original teachings of the sages lost, or perhaps gained, while being transplanted onto foreign soil? And how is it that there are so many very different forms of yoga, which between them seem to include everything from muscles to mindfulness, stress-busting to spiritual liberation? This book is in part an attempt to define what this thing we call yoga really is. Whatever the answer, yoga in some form is everywhere these days, taught and practiced in almost every country in the world. The recent growth in the United States alone has been extraordinary. From a few hundred thousand engaging in some form of practice in the closing decades of the 20th century, Numbers rose to about 4 million in 2001, and then to over 37 million by 2016. That was twice as many as five years before, and the upward trend continues. According to surveys conducted by Yoga Journal, another 80 million are very interested in beginning some sort of practice. This is not just clever industry promotion. The National Institutes of Health, NIH, backs these figures. In the United Kingdom, the number of people doing yoga is less, of course, conservatively estimated at around 3 million. But that figure, too, is increasing rapidly. This enthusiasm looks set to continue as yoga becomes ever more firmly entrenched in our individual fitness routines and our communal education and remedial systems. Body and Mind In his influential book, Raja Yoga, published in 1896, Swami Vivekananda, who, as we shall see in Chapter 11, was a prime mover in introducing the West to yoga, tells the story of a god and a demon who went to learn about the cosmic self from a great sage. They studied with him for a long time. 
At last the wise man told them, You yourselves are the being you are seeking. Both of them thought that their bodies were the self. They went back to their people quite satisfied and said, We have learned everything that was to be learned. Eat, drink and be merry. We are the self. There is nothing beyond us. As the demon was by nature ignorant, he never inquired any further and remained stuck in this materialist view. But the god was a purer being. Before long, seeing the disease, pain and mortality of bodies, he returned to the sage, saying, Sir, did you teach me that this body was the self? If so, I see all bodies die, but the real self is immortal and cannot die. The sage replied, As I told you, you are that. Find out what this really means. And so, after much searching and investigation, the god at last had the realization that he was the self beyond all thought, the one without birth or death, whom the sword cannot pierce or the fire burn, whom the air cannot dry or the water melt, without beginning or end, the immovable, the intangible, the omniscient and omnipotent being. He experienced in his own case that it was neither the body nor the mind, but beyond them all. So he was satisfied, fully enlightened. But the poor demon did not get the truth, owing to his undue fondness for the body. While we moderns may believe in neither gods nor demons, the good Swami's story is not without relevance. Behind the enthusiastic global adoption of yoga, there lurks a general confusion as to what its real aims might be. The relationship between body culture and spiritual aspiration is as unclear now as it was in those distant days of Vivekananda's story. The uncertainty is not helped by historical inconsistencies in yogic terminology. Many people who teach what has aptly been called modern postural yoga, MPY, use the traditional name Hatha Yoga, the yoga of force, to describe what they offer their students. However, as recent scholarship has shown, the oldest root texts of Hatha pay very little attention to postures. As we shall see in chapters 5 and 10, such records are far less interested in the anatomy of the gross, that is, sensible, body than in its invisible inner counterpart, the so-called subtle body that acts as the conduit for the cosmic life force. By gross, I refer to the world as understood by our senses and limited to the laws of time and space. Subtle, in contrast, refers to that which exists within and or behind this reality, comprising forms of awareness outside of those confines and including perception of various discarnate beings, such as spirits, demons and gods. The recommendations for the physical body are mainly confined to a rigorous regime of purification, utilizing procedures collectively known as the Shat Karma, the six methods, the purpose of which is to purify and prepare the system at both gross and subtle levels 
to sustain expanded levels of consciousness. Such preparatory routines include cleansing the stomach by swallowing a long strip of cloth, dhuti, yogic enemas, vasti, and cleaning the nasal passages by means of salty water or a waxed string, nali. In addition, the whole discipline of hatha yoga is couched in a metaphysical framework that is largely inaccessible to the modern mindset. For example, it is said that when the gross and subtle bodies of a mature aspirant are suitably purified, deep meditation will yield him supernormal powers and, eventually, the total liberation from earthly constraints that is enlightenment. Hardly surprisingly, most of this is lacking in today's typical postural class. Though they are clearly beneficial for health, fitness and a general sense of well-being, the programs taught today under the name of Hatha Yoga typically bear little resemblance to the tradition whose name they use. Put simply, Hatha Yoga meant something quite different in 15th century India, when the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, the classic text on Hatha, was composed, to what it means in the 21st century West. Similar ambiguities hover around another common classification, Raja Yoga, the Royal Way. Since Vivekananda's mission to the West, many, especially his followers, have taken Raja Yoga to mean the type of yoga in which meditation predominates. In fact, the ideas and practices historically grouped together under the kingly parasol of Raja Yoga have always comprised a highly variegated mix, which includes non-meditational practices and is presented with different emphases in different texts and at different times. The definition of styles becomes even more confused when we consider the astonishing variety of classical yoga, to say nothing of the modern scene. Not only is there no single system in Indian tradition called yoga, but one contemporary scholar-practitioner has identified no fewer than 42 discrete approaches. Bearing this complexity in mind, in my overall approach to the subject, I have settled for the simple categories of body yoga and mind yoga to serve as a general distinction. By body yoga, I mean the physical routines of posture, asana, the bandhas, which are muscular contractions to close off the throat, contract and lift the abdomen or draw the pelvic floor inward, purification regimes, kriyas, and breathing exercises, pranayama. On the other hand, what I call mind yoga comprises the practice of specific techniques of mental introversion or meditation. But even this simplification raises another point of confusion. The word meditation is commonly used very loosely to cover a variety of different practices that are by no means congruent. Reflection and other kinds of discursive thinking, creative visualization, affirmations, listening to mood music, mindfulness strategies and guided imaginative journeys, as well as progressive relaxation techniques, 
are all often lumped together under the one catch-all term and thereby given more or less equal status. In addition, many people claim that they meditate in their own way whilst gardening, jogging or walking the dog. Activities such as these are certainly enjoyable and have beneficial effects, but when all is said and done, they are still activities and so cannot rightfully be equated with the progressive physical and mental inactivity that characterizes true meditation. By meditation, then, I mean the process outlined by Patanjali in his Yoga Sutra and followed by many other authorities. In principle, this entails a silent and internalized journey that proceeds, independent of external input or guidance, through defined and progressive phases of relaxation, interiorization and expansion. It begins with a withdrawal of the senses from their gross level of functioning, pratyahara, and proceeds through a focus, dharana, and a deepening movement of the attention inwards, dihana, which results in successive levels of settled mental absorption, samadhi. An immediate caveat is necessary. Any division between body and mind is, of course, provisional, for, as science is now revealing at ever greater depth, body and mind influence each other intimately and continuously. From a biological point of view, the mental and emotional world we experience is largely the result of biochemical mechanisms shaped by millions of years of evolution. Our perceived reality is always a psychosomatic affair, determined as much by chemicals as consciousness. Similarly, our mental setting creates changes in our biochemistry. It is more accurate to speak of the mind-body complex than of separate categories. Yoga has known this for centuries, developing and practicing both physical and mental techniques in order to create a subjective sense of well-being, whatever the outer circumstances. The neurological processes involved in such body-mind interaction may be complex, but they can be stimulated easily enough. Any holistic yoga teacher knows that performing a physical posture easily and holding it without undue effort calms the mind and inculcates a muscle memory that, with the release of a dopamine-induced feeling of pleasure, motivates the desire to repeat the process. By the same token, every competent meditation teacher is aware that mental techniques bring about perceptible and enjoyable changes in the breathing and body. As the two complementary sides of one coin then, body and mind can never really be separated. Nevertheless, as an approach to understanding the nuances of yogic praxis, the distinction between body yoga and mind yoga can serve as a convenient shorthand to describe practices that are discrete but overlapping and always interconnected. The distinctions made may seem pedantic to some, but they are necessary to write an imbalance. Discussions of body yoga are generally clear enough. 
The anatomical basis of postures and their effects on the physiology are being ever more thoroughly examined and catalogued, and the latest research updates disseminated worldwide via a huge and growing number of papers, conferences, seminars, and yoga festivals each year. But the understanding of mind yoga, in the sense of the contemplative self-transcendence described, is typically beset by imprecision. In fact, it has been almost ignored as an integral part of modern practice, and all too often considered an optional extra that each person must discover on their own. As a result, the mechanics of mind yoga remain largely uncharted territory, which the traveller is left to meander without much guidance, finding their way as best they can. East is East One recurring theme of this book is to explore what happens when ancient teachings are uprooted and transplanted into modern soil. The confusions that can arise in the transition from East to West, sacred to secular, are clearly discernible in the three main branches of Indian wisdom that have been exported from the land of the Veda in the last century or so. Postural yoga, meditation, and Ayurveda, or the knowledge of life. This last, the traditional Hindu system of medicine, is today closely linked with yoga, partly because of the connection made between the two by various recent teachers, such as Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, and Baba Ramdev. As we shall see, the process of transferring wisdom from one time and place to another is by no means as straightforward an affair as is often assumed. Everything has its own context. Models of reality and vocabularies of understanding can differ widely from culture to culture and from one era to another. At best, the changes, adaptations and misunderstandings necessarily involved in such a transition are insignificant and matter little, but in some cases the original teachings can be eroded and even traduced. Some implications of this cultural confusion as regards mind and body yoga are discussed in the second half of this book. Yoga Academica Over the last 20 years, studies on yoga have largely focused on its extraordinary rise in popularity. In response to this, there has also been a recent explosion of more specialized academic interest, which seeks to uncover yoga's sources, historical development, and cultural contexts. Unlike earlier generations of scholars, many involved in this exploration are practitioners themselves. Exciting and long overdue this may be, but it is largely a separate phenomenon from yoga on the ground. Many who do yoga may wish to study the historical roots of their practice, but their attempts to do so can often become bogged down in a morass of academic jargon. The definitions of methodological choice and justifications of ideological positioning that render a study acceptable in the post-Derrida-Foucault halls of academia 
are not what yoga buffs are looking for. Their understanding of yoga has not been formed up in the university library or out on an anthropological field trip, but down on the mat. When seeking authority, they are more likely to turn to hands-on teachers who are considered advanced on the path than to fastidious academics squabbling over their respective perspectives. Bearing this in mind, part of my purpose is to distill some of the most recent research and present it in an accessible way, so that any teacher or practitioner of yoga, and indeed anyone, can expand their knowledge and enjoyment. Mine is not a scholarly study, though the early chapters, which deal with early texts, are necessarily quite academic, but if it stimulates fresh thinking and debate, so much the better. For those who wish to take their exploration of specific topics deeper, well over a 150 sources, some academic, some more popular, are cited in the notes as an encouragement to further study. Translations The major classical yoga texts are in Sanskrit, a language replete with poetic and imaginative nuance, multiple meanings, and sometimes oblique perspectives. Debates over translation, literal-slash-academic versus poetic-slash-yogic, can be highly charged, and etymologies are often contested and sometimes distorted. To me, it seems that, to serve a yogic purpose, a translation should combine linguistic accuracy with an inspired sense of the possibilities that legitimately arise from the material. To this end, I have used a variety of translations. The early Vedic passages are taken from Janine Miller, a scholar-practitioner who had an interest in theosophy. The verses drawn from Patanjali's Yoga Sutra are my own reproduced from my published translation. Likewise, some of the Upanishadic passages are excerpted from my selections from the Upanishads. Others are taken from the best-selling version of the Upanishads by Eknat Esuaran, a professor of literature who was also the founder of the Blue Mountain Center of Meditation in Berkeley, California. Compared to other recent and lauded versions, such as those of Valerie Roebuck and Patrick Olivelle, Esuarans are relatively free renderings, with, it must be said, occasional interpretative interpolations not warranted by the original. Nevertheless, they are always easily accessible, coherent and free-flowing, and unencumbered by excessive footnotes. It is these qualities that have made them so consistently popular among yoga students worldwide. Translations from the Bhagavad Gita are by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, while other translated passages, such as the esoteric medieval Hatha Yoga material, are credited as and when they occur. In sum... In attempting to explain the hybrid creature we call yoga, I have sought to shed some light on its very mixed parentage, the curious and sometimes convoluted circumstances that attended its birth, 
and the place it occupies in our modern world. As regards this last, given how deeply yogic praxis has become embedded in the fabric of contemporary life, it can no longer be divorced from other powerful movements currently shaping our society. Any in-depth study must consider some apparently diverse yet interconnected topics, including women's empowerment, the digital imperative, celebrity culture, the stress pandemic, and the quest for an authentic identity in the face of unprecedented change. Such a broad cultural treatment has not been attempted before this book, which, as a result, offers generous, but I hope not promiscuous, accommodation to several unlikely bedfellows. These include scholarship and scandal, fads and philosophies, critique and credence, wisdom and waywardness. Welcome to the ongoing story of yoga.